First Timothy chapter 1, what makes a disciple? What makes a disciple? Three weeks ago, we started this study of uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy. This is the first of three pastoral letters uh, that Paul wrote, two of them to Timothy, one to Titus. Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, Titus the church in Crete. Uh, the book can be summed up in this one uh, passage here, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. As a church... As a Christian, we are children of God, and we are the family of God, and we need to know how we ought to conduct ourselves in God's household, right? So this book is super important. I believe it's uh, uh, ordained of the Lord for us to be traveling through this season uh, of Mill City Church. We're coming up on our seventh birthday in September. Kind of hard to believe it's been that long, but uh, it's... Exciting to see what God has done. So with that in mind, uh, what I believe we will be seeing as we work through this book is what the Lord has to say to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ on how to live with each other. So let's get back into it. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so far we've looked briefly at Timothy's life with Paul, a quick overview of his history. We see him as a true son in the faith. Some versions say a true child in the faith. Uh, and what we've been looking at the last three weeks is what makes a true child in the faith. What is he describing? Well, what is that? We know he's not a biological son of Paul's. Um, so what we've landed on here, what I've, I've presented to you is what this means is he is a disciple. He's not a disciple of Paul so much as he is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ through Paul. And um, we saw in in week one, the benefits of being a disciple of Christ, grace, mercy, and peace, something everyone is looking for in today's world. Today, we're going to continue with this statement, a true son in the faith. We see in verse 18, Paul also referring to Timothy as a son. We've seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and Philippians chapter 2, Paul describing him. So throughout the ministry, Paul is looking at Timothy as a son, and discipleship uh, is, is such an important um, factor in our walk with the Lord. It's a command of the Lord that we are to make disciples. And so uh, what we're traveling through here is what makes, uh, what are the marks, what are char the characteristics of a disciple of Christ? Two weeks ago, we saw the first two components the first is this, a saving faith. To be a disciple, you have to have a saving faith. Uh, Paul 
affirms that in Timothy, just in this opening passage, he says, God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our hope, Christ Jesus, our Lord, just the phrase itself confirms that Timothy has a saving faith. The second mark of a true disciple of Christ is continued obedience. 2 Timothy chapter 3, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. We discussed the, the benefits of uh, continued obedience the next Wednesday night. If you were not here, it's not because I haven't told you. Uh, I tell you every week we have a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and uh, it is a great time to be in the presence of God. I want to encourage you to be there, because when you're not here, you miss it. So a true disciple of Christ is marked by a life of continued obedience. It never stops. You never graduate from being obedient. And this is critical for the discipler as well. Um, uh, could, could you bring the house lights up just a little bit more? I'm, I'm staring at lights and not people. There we go. Hello. It's nice to see you all this morning. Um, do as I say, not as I do. Doesn't work, does it? It never works, especially not in the church. So as a discipler, you need to be walking it out. Uh, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, what does it mean? To be a follower of Christ, watch my life and you'll see it lived out. Talk is cheap. Words don't mean as much as actions. Right, dads? Right. Today we continue. The third mark of a true disciple is humble service. Humble service. First Thessalonians chapter 1, they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The mark of a disciple, the life of a disciple, is a life of service to him. We are saved to serve. And serving is one of our core values here at Mill City Church. In fact, that's one of the reasons that we started with two services, was so that you didn't have to make a choice. Do I attend church or do I serve church. You can do both on Sunday mornings because uh, that's our call. We are not only uh, saved to serve, but we are called to serve. Most people will not go into vocational ministry. And what I mean by that is most people will not, uh, their full-time job will not be in some uh, ministry position. Most people will serve the Lord by serving his church. Now, of course, we all have opportunities to be Christ ambassadors every single day, all day. But remember, Paul is writing this letter so that we know how we ought to conduct ourselves in God's household. Which brings up another point. Who? Who are you serving when you're serving humbly? Philippians chapter 2, in describing Timothy, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him. What does that mean? Well, this, this man, Timothy, shows genuine concern for your welfare. Everybody else looks towards their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus, but not Timothy. Timothy has proved himself 
because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. As a disciple, it's not about you. It's about him. And the mark of a true disciple in Christ is humble service. Chapter 3, verse 1 Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, and, and this concept here in context is we're talking about church leaders, ministry leaders. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. It's good, in other words, to want to be a ministry leader. But there are some qualifications. We'll see them in detail when we get to this uh, chapter 3. But something very important here is he cannot be, must not be, a recent convert. Why? Because he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. What is that? That's pride. It's just common. It, it's a common um, weakness in our humanity is we very easily become puffed up. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very um, dangerous place to be. In serving uh, with, with deacons, verse 8, he's talking about deacons. These are, are other church leaders. These are more um, administrative leaders. They must first be tested. And then, if there's nothing against them, then let them serve. This is the mark of a disciple. It is also a mark of a discipler. All of these marks, all of these characteristics go both ways. 1 Peter chapter 5, in his closing remarks, Peter writes this, To the elders among you, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock. That's under you, watching over them, not because you have to, but because you're willing to. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. You see, the mark of a leader is service. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about the Lord. We don't lord it over you, but we are examples to the flock, follow me as I follow Christ. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. There's a, there's a blessing, there's a benefit, there's a reward for servant leadership. In the same way, verse 5, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, this would be the elders and the younger, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So humble yourselves before God so that he can lift you up when the time is right. Verse 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, I have heard that verse 7 my whole life. My mother, one of my mother's favorite things to say to me, cast all your anxiety on him for he carries, cares for you. But that's not a standalone verse. In fact, it's a button on a passage here. 
One of the most difficult things to do as a believer is be patient and wait on the Lord. Time and time again throughout the Bible, we see men of God who got ahead of God. They had a word from him. They had a vision from him. They had an assignment from him. But they got the timing wrong. And I love how this passage ends. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. When you're waiting on God, it can rob you of peace, can't it? And, and the truth is, God cares more about your mission. He cares more about your mission field. He cares more about your children. He cares more about your coworkers. He cares more about your neighbors than you do. And sometimes when we get this word or we get this assignment or, you know, I've got this plan and I'm sure it's from God, then I have to get going after it. But if the timing's not right, then the results won't be there. And, and again, you can get to that point where you're like, you know, God, don't you even care? Yeah, he cares. And times of silence from God can make us very anxious, can't it? I wonder if that's why, one of the reasons why God says, hey, don't pick somebody who's new because there's a lot of things they don't yet know. And they need to be tested one of the greatest tests of the Lord is silence. Can you still trust him? Even when you don't have the green light? The answer is yes. I believe that nearly all of the examples of people who got ahead of God in, in the Bible were not malicious um, in fact, it's the opposite. They had zeal for God, but in their zeal and anxiety, they get in front of God. It never turns out well for them. And yet, God can make all things work together for good. Joseph is a great example of someone who got in front of God, great man of God, and at the end of his life, he was able to see that. And see that his brothers intended for harm, but God was able to shift it. Um, isn't it funny how God lets us get into trouble sometimes? In First uh, Samuel, the people of Israel. Um, they reject Samuel as prophet because they want a king. They want a king. Why? Because everybody has a king. We just want to be like everybody else. And Samuel is going before the Lord, and the Lord says to him, you know, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So give the people what they want. I believe we're living in a land where God has given this land what they want. And it's not always best, is it? But we know, Romans chapter 8, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We are 
called to serve humbly. There's a fourth mark. A true disciple of Christ has sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. This really goes hand in hand with the first characteristic, a saving faith, because a saving faith is based on sound doctrine. But the concept here is maintaining sound doctrine, maintaining it as you grow in the Lord. Verse 3, I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. This is a, this is a very harsh statement. He says some, some people in the church, in Ephesus, have departed and turned to what? False doctrine, myths, endless genealogies, and meaningless talk. He says none of these things are of value. In fact, they're dangerous. Look at verse 19. Some have rejected and have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Not only have they departed from the faith, they have shipwrecked their faith. This is super important. Sound doctrine is very important. Paul says it in a different way in chapter 4. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things thought, taught by demons. The teachings come from hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared. They don't even think about it. It's not even a big deal to them. In Titus, he talks about it. He says, foolish controversies, genealogies, there it is again, arguments and quarrels about the law, they're unprofitable and useless. And here's what you're supposed to do with those people. You warn them once, you warn them twice, and then have nothing to do with them. Why? Because they're warped and they're sinful and they are self-condemned. And people who pull others away from sound doctrine will be dealt with. They are to be dealt with by the church and rest assured, God will deal with them. Now, I often t say this. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know. It doesn't tell us everything there is to know. Okay? There's lots of stuff to know that's not in the Bible. Um, but you do need to know what to focus on. What is your salvation based on? That's very important. And it's very clear. Uh, I found that, that um, some of the things that are in the Bible that aren't clear, which there's a bunch of them, just really aren't that important. But the things that are super important, i.e., what's your salvation based on, that's 
really clear. You need not worry about that. It's clear as a bell. That heightens it to very important things. Now, I'll give you an example. In 1 Corinthians um, chapter 12, Paul begins a, a teaching on um, a complex theological um, uh, on complex theology, <laughs> the baptism in the Holy Spirit. He introduces it in chapter 12. He positions it in chapter 13. And then he gives procedures and boundaries in chapter 14. And then in chapter 15, he turns on a dime and he says this, now I want to remind you of the gospel. It's the gospel I preach to you it's the one you received, and it's the one on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. What is it? Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Nuts and bolts. Now, why am I pointing this out? It's not that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not important. It's not that I don't believe it. In fact, the argument isn't whether or not it's real. It's more in whether it's for today or just yesterday. That's where it is, and that's my point. It's argued. Uh, it isn't advancing the gospel, in other words, when it becomes an argument. It's Christians fighting against Christians over things that aren't advancing the gospel. Now, for me, God said it, I believe it, I've experienced it, and that settles it, so I'm cool with that, and I'm not going to debate you on it. Uh, but here in chapter 15, after a long, deep teaching on a complicated subject, Paul refocuses the church on the mission of the church. Now, I want to remind you of the gospel. It's the gospel that you're saved. And then he says this, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Isn't that interesting? A true disciple of Christ understands what sound doctrine is, and they hold firmly to it. Now, as a discipler, you are responsible for helping those who God entrusts to you to stay the course and hold firm to it. And if you're responsible for them, then you'll answer for that. Now, I'm not saying that to scare you, just a little bit. Um, but to help you to understand the importance of your role. And let me say this too. You don't have to stay away from tough subjects. In fact, I think you should, I believe you should take the responsibility to go into tough subjects because the question's gonna come up. Now, in, when Michael was in fifth grade, uh, we, were, we were traveling, uh, we were moving back to, uh, to Wisconsin, and um, we had uh, a trip back down to Springfield to close on the house, and uh, it was just he and I that went down there to pick up the, the final scraps uh, in the house. And, um, and the next week, uh, his class was going to go through the reproductive uh, class. And um, 
that was a little sooner than I thought it was appropriate. Um, and so I thought, well, I had this trip planned when he was 13 to, to go through the whole deal. And um, so this was sooner than I had planned on it, but it was just the two of us. We're in a Penske truck, and we're, we're driving, and I thought, well, I don't know what they're going to teach him, and so better he hear it all from me, because I'm going to teach him what he needs to know, and parents in the, in, in the room, uh, you know, I'm 50 years old, and, and my parents didn't teach me any of it, so the, uh, for whatever reason, that was just generational probably, but, you know, you young parents here in, in the uh, in the congregation, this is your responsibility to teach your children about reproduction and all that goes with that. Uh, so I took him from like minus five all the way to 50. And um, uh, I mean, it was sweaty palms and I mean, it was, it was a long conversation and I remember, you know, one time he asked me, why did they do that? And I don't know. And, you know, this was, this, we, he went through the full meal deal. And come to find out the next week, they didn't get into half of the stuff in fifth grade. So uh, at least he heard it all from me, okay? And then when he was 13 and we went on the big long trip, he, we went through it again, but he had a base of knowledge. We were working off a foundation. Um, listen, as a discipler, it is your responsibility to, to keep those you are discipling firmly entrenched in sound doctrine. This is a great example here in 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul didn't say, hey, you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit's really hard to understand. You're not ready for it, and so let's just stay in the safe area. He did not do that. No, he dove into it, but then he brought it back to the gospel. I was in a conversation last week with somebody who was asking about the current times. And um, he's, he's a new believer. And by, by that I mean he was, he was asking about current events and those who are in power and making decisions and decisions that are being made today that are outside of our control and influence. And, and I have an opinion um, and I shared that with him. I'll share it with you. I, I believe we're living in the last days. We're living in the last days. Um, I taught on that for four weeks back in uh, October and November of uh, 2017 when we were in Mark chapter 13. I can say that within, with confidence, though, because Paul believed he was living in the last days. So, I mean, this is a very an open-ended category, the last days. But... Um, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said this, it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. You see, you do have an assignment. And you, you can be and you should be empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill that assignment. But the truth is, you're on a need-to-know basis on some things. And you just don't need to know everything. Jesus doesn't even know. The angels in heaven don't even know. Only the Father knows all that there is to know. And you can be settled on that. I don't need to know it. You don't need to know it. 
But let's look briefly at what Jesus said. On the night before he would be arrested, Mark chapter 13, he's sitting on the, in, the, in the Mount of Olives, which just geographically setting, there's this valley, it's called the Kitron Valley, that separates the temple uh, from the Mount of Olives. He, they have been teaching, he's been teaching all day uh, in, uh, in the temple. It's now in the evening, they've crossed over the Kitron Valley, they're up on the Mount of Olives, and, and one of the disciples says, Jesus, look at the temple. Isn't it amazing? And he says, I'm going to tell you right now, that's not going to last forever. In fact, there's going to come a time when not one stone will be sitting on another. And then Peter, James, and John, and Andrews say, hey, tell us when this is going to happen. What's going to be the sign? And so he says, watch out, no one deceives you, verse 5. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places and famines. And this is just the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand what to say. Just say whatever's given to you at the time because it's not going to be you speaking. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. A father, his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now you can just look at that passage right there. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to come to the conclusion. We're coming to the end here. How much worse does it have to get? When Luke 17, Jesus tells us, as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking and marrying and giving the marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them all. Well, you might say, well, what was that like? Genesis chapter 6 tells us the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. How much worse can it get? It's pretty bad right now. So when's that going to be? Pretty close right now. Will we still be here? Or will the Lord rapture the church? I sure hope so. But I don't know. Not for me to know. Now, let me remind you of the gospel. Because it's the gospel on which you're saved. It's the gospel on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel... You have eternity. 
secured. You see how easy it can be to get sidetracked on endless genealogies and things that don't advance the gospel. And there are ministries all over the place that can move you this direction or move you that direction. And ultimately, let me tell you this, they don't advance the gospel. And you have to be careful about those things. Discipleship will help you to stay in sound doctrine. Fifth, and finally, the worship team can come. The mark of a true disciple of Christ is what I refer, refer to as courageous conviction. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so you can may command certain people not to teach false doctrine anymore or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Timothy, my son, verse 18, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. Hold on to the faith and a good conscience, even though some have rejected it and suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. John MacArthur puts it this way, anybody, everybody wants to go along for the ride. And even a dead fish can float downstream. But it takes a live one to fight against the current. Ministry is hard work. Discipleship is hard work. Paul says we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Any level of service to God that he's called you to will have difficulty. And Paul writes about that in Ephesians 6. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Hey, remember this. It's not just your wife. It's not just your husband. It's not just your kids. There's a spiritual battle that's happening all around us. And there's a power that you and I cannot fully comprehend. He calls them spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And it can be super confusing sometimes because you're serving God. I mean, really, wouldn't you think that if you're serving God, that he should be behind you and helping you in every single thing that and you shouldn't have the kind of problems that you face. And, and the truth is, he is helping you. He is behind you. But there's another battle out there. We want the best for those that we're serving, that we're ministering to. We love them. 
And it is out of a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. So why is there this fight? Why, is there, why am I up against this concrete ceiling sometimes? And, and you're Christ ambassador too, aren't you? I mean, we're, we're serving Jesus and Jesus is love, right? He's the lamb of God. And, and yes, that's true too. He's also lying. And he has to be sometimes. In fact, he says this in Luke chapter 12. I haven't, I've come to bring fire on the earth. I haven't come to bring peace on the earth, no, but division. Why? Because I'm calling you to a higher standard. I'm going to separate your family. Because some of you are going to believe this because it's true and you're going to devote your life to it. And there's going to be some people in your household that were going to call you nuts. And that number is higher than those that will believe. Jesus says the road is narrow and the gate is small. And not many will take it. And that can be really confusing sometimes. It takes courage. And conviction is critical. You will be told all throughout life, be true. And more times than ever will you be told to be true to your feelings. Because your feelings will never betray you. Except every single time. No, you need to be true to your convictions. And it's going to take courage. The mark of a true disciple of Christ is courage under fire. And that courage has to come from a firmly rooted conviction and it takes courage to say what needs to be said even when it's unpopular because it's right and it's going to take courage to do what needs to be done especially when it's unpopular because it's right and don't expect the world to line up behind you and say, you go for it, you get it. Every No, they're going to line up in front of you and fight you. And it's going to take courage. That's why we need each other. Tell you what, if I did not have the disciples in my life pouring into me, especially over the last seven years. I'm telling you, I'd have thrown in the towel. Six years and 10 months ago. But when you've got somebody in your corner cheering you on, holding you, picking you up, 
and putting you back in the game. Man, so critical. So how you doing? Five marks of a true disciple of Christ. Saving faith. Do you have saving faith? Are you living a life of continued obedience? Every layer. Are you humbly serving the Lord and each other? Are you grounded in sound doctrine? And are you living a life of courageous conviction? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your blessings on our life, for helping us as we follow you, Lord. uh, God, teach us. We've been challenged these last couple of weeks about this command to make disciples. Every single one of us is to be walking that out. And I believe every single one of us has an assignment. Lord, I pray for your supernatural protection upon this church. Guard our hearts against those things that lead us astray that don't advance your gospel. Lord, may we stay grounded in you. Pray for our discipleship ministry as as you're raising up disciples and disciplers. God, may your hand be upon it, your favor be upon it. Yes, in Jesus' name.